0: Welcome to the Intriguing Beings Podcast with me, Roo Chater. Episode 17 with Tim Turner. Hi everyone, hope you're doing well. Hope you had a fantastic week last week and you're looking forward to a good week ahead. I'm back once again, it's Monday. I'm getting back into the swing of these a little bit more regularly after the festive break when I took a week off. And I've got a great episode for you this week. It's a gentleman called Tim Turner, who's become a friend of mine in recent years, ever since I started covering a race called the Red Bull Lighthouse to Leighton for him. Tim's the organiser of the race and the founder of the race. He set it up and um, makes sure it happens every year and does a fantastic job of that. And he invited me over, I think it was about five years ago, for the first time um there's an interesting story around that actually because he asked me sometime in the summer if i'd go and i'm not sure if tim knows this story so this would be a first for him but he asked me in the summer if i would go and me being me said yeah of course i'll come you know trip to australia sounds fantastic count me in and then he asked me sometime before the race a few weeks before have you got your flights are you all sorted you coming over and i was at the time incredibly busy with the deadline actually you know sadly hadn't booked my flights because I'd kind of forgotten about it because I was a bit scatty and that's the way I am and suddenly had this dilemma of what do I do do I um, you know get these flights head over to Australia cover the race for Tim and potentially get a good relationship going or do I bail because I've got so much going on and I can't see the wood for the trees and I can't see how I can find the time to get to Australia and back in the end after agonizing it for a little while I actually um, pulled the trigger got the flights and went to Australia I think for five days just to cover the race and the customs people couldn't actually believe that I was coming to Australia for such a short amount of time I think I um, spun them a line that I was visiting a friend who had a baby and I had so much work to do I just had to get back and I spent the actual five days sat in a hotel room working round the clock to get the magazine published on some very lacklustre internet which Australia is famous for but in the end I managed to get the magazine published and I managed to cover the race and you know Tim was a fantastic host and since then I've been going back every year and we've become great friends um, so I'm really glad in that instance that I said yes which is a poignant look back to some of the podcasts that we've done where people say you know step out of your comfort zone say yes to things and great things happen so there's a great example of it anyway Tim's a really interesting chap he's been working really hard on this race for a long time and it's his you know energy and enthusiasm that ensures it happens he gets a whole bunch of volunteers together he's got you know over 200 people applying to do the race and there's a lot of decisions that he has to make around that to keep people happy to make sure the race runs properly and i thought he'd be a very engaging person to talk to and as you'll find from the podcast he is indeed so without any more waffle from me let's get into this week's episode today i am sat with a gentleman called tim turner Um, originally hailing from the UK, who's now been living in Australia for a considerable amount of time. Um, He organises what I believe to be one of the best kiteboarding races on the planet, and he's been bringing me over to the race every year for about five years now, and I really enjoy coming over here. And I thought it'd be an interesting chap to talk to and find out a little bit more about the race and what goes on behind the scenes and how it happens um, and things like that. It's called the Red Bull Lighthouse to Leighton, uh there's articles about it on our magazine website ik surf mag so you can read about it see pictures and find out everything you want to know about it right there and if you ever get the chance i highly recommend you enter it and have a crack at it it's basically a race from Rotnest island um, which is in western australia to Leighton beach in perth uh, it's a crossing of about 19 20 kilometers And the record got broken this year by a guy called Guy Bridge, who managed to do it in 18 minutes and 45 seconds, I think, which was absolutely blistering time. So, Tim, um, first question to you. Where did the idea come from to set up this race? It's quite unique.
1: Yeah, afternoon, Ruth. It's nice to be sitting here having uh, just knocked off the ninth edition (laughs) quite successfully in good sort of solid 22 knots. So, where did it come from? Basically, I'm King Kaida. been sailboarder, et cetera, for many years and lots of kiters kite off the west coast of Western Australia, or Either it's at Layton or sort of South Cottesloe. And there's always omnipresent, this big rock called Rottenhurst Island. Uh, and everyone's always looking out to it and thinking, yeah, it'd be good to actually kite there one day. So I've been thinking about it for a while and I actually sort of did a little test event with a friend who had a rib at the end of one season in March and okay. I worked out, I figured it was probably gonna work, but worked out that you could kite quite nicely in you know, a reasonably strong southerly, southwester, and we sort of knocked it off. And I thought, yeah, that was the catalyst for thinking we could do it. And then I put a submission pretty much um, via the Red Bull website, if you've kind of got, like, got a good idea, send it in. So I sort of sent it in thinking, yeah, I'm still going to do this. And you know, Red Bull were just a, a natural fit to actually approach. And yeah. a few weeks or maybe even a month or so later, I had an email from a gentleman called Ross Wyness. So Ross was what they called the field marketing manager. Uh, he was sort of responsible for a lot of the sales in WA. He said, yep, love to come and have a chat. And the more I got to know Ross, the more I had sort of full confidence in what Red Bull were interested in doing. And he'd actually put as part, I think, of his submission to get the role with Red Bull uh, that he wanted to put on a, a pretty kicking kiteboard race. So here I was sort of delivering the concept and my sort of background strategy, sales and marketing. So we had a reasonably good business plan and it kind of evolved from there. So really it was... A desire to race, a desire to see if I could be the fastest, which <laughs> clearly
0: I never was, although I was in Namibia, but that's another story. Uh, yeah, and it rolled on from there, really. Okay. So that's quite an interesting um, idea that you kind of mm. had this concept. When you first tried it, what kite did you take over there? What gear did you use? Did you sort yeah, of... It would have just been an
1: 11, probably a 12-meter uh not a switchblade, a crossbow in the early okay. days. Uh, and just, yeah, twin tip and just scoot across. And, and how was the first crossing? Good fun? Yeah, it was exciting. You felt like it was sort of a little bit groundbreaking. It, was a bit, it wasn't the classic sort of summer sea breeze day. It was a bit sort of wintry, even though it was sort of more the end of end of summer that time. Yep. Uh, had like my own little private rib, so I was I was escorted, safe at all times.
0: Anyone else with you or just solo on that first no, one? No, I
1: had a chick friend of mine and a mate of mine who drove powerboats. So yep. it was just the three of us. We went over, went and had lunch at the pub. Said, yeah, come on, let's go and do this. And people can kite on Rotnest as well, can't they? If they want to for a, for the day or whatever. Yep, absolutely. And certainly encouraging people to do that. Rotnest, who are one of our supporters of our race, they're really keen to see more people kiting there. I mean, you can skydive there as well. Uh, and they've thrown a whole heap of money at sort of eco tourism. So yeah, it's a, a real aquatic playground. Yep. But historically in the past, it's probably been thought of more as a, sort of beachside family holiday or if you've got a, a nice yacht you go and park up over there but certainly the the paradigm's shifting and more and more people are going over there to surf yeah it's probably one of the best surfing spots in the metropolitan area
0: it's just that you need a boat to get there so makes it a bit tricky to reach it can be and um what about the legalities of it? i was chatting to someone yesterday and they basically said that you know waxer uh, um, which is the Western Australian Kite Surfing Association had been looking at doing something like the race, but they'd never managed to get the permissions for it, and never managed to sort of open those doors. How did you go about getting, you know, the permissions to run a race like that? For sure. So a friend of mine, Marnie, her dad was actually the general
1: manager of Raw Life Saving. Okay. So you know, I was sort of youngish then, entrepreneur, came up with the idea, had a chat to Royal Life Saving. So they're like a like a semi-government style body. So I kind of partnered with them in the first year, and have partnered with them with them every year since. So they helped me write the risk management plan. They helped me write the the rescue plan, and then they also sort of provide a, a bit of extra clout to you know a small individual like myself. So yeah. it's good to have resources like that as partnerships. Yeah. And then obviously we built the partnership with the Fremantle Sailing Club, who are absolutely fantastic. They bring six, seven, eight boats along, uh, and then obviously partnering now well as we always have done with kiteboarding western australia which used to be waxer so yes i've created it and run it but there's a team probably when i look at how many t-shirts we produce so we have 135 t-shirts yeah and probably about 70 volunteer t-shirts
0: so right. it shows you so there's to... a lot of people helping out yeah that's pretty huge. And did you have to approach local government or anything like that to, to say, can we run this race? And was that difficult? Yep. So the main people we get authorities from are the Department of Transport, so Marine Safety. So yep. they because do... it's
1: a shipping lane, right, that you're crossing. So there's an element of, of yeah. danger there, I guess. Absolutely. So the, the shipping lane is actually quite narrow. So it's about 500 metres. So that's where the, sh- the big ships can only go up and down. Um, you wouldn't necessarily know it looking from the shore. you think they just cruise up and down what's called Gage Roads, which is the ocean between basically the coast and Rottenest. But there's a distinct shipping channel. It's about 500, maybe 700 metres wide. So really quite narrow. So, you know, to get 130 people over that successfully uh, is what we need to do. So we get approval from Fremantle Port Authority as well, City of Fremantle, and then obviously the, the Rottenest Island Authority. So there's sort of six different regulatory bodies that's quite a lot of paperwork i'd imagine and quite a lot of chatting to make that happen yeah i mean we've quite genuinely built up a really really good track record we're super super astute on our safety and we provide a really detailed management report every year and send that back to the port authority to the department of transport etc so you know we make it easy to help them make a decision that we can continue to do this event so you know the, the government authorities Yes, they're into regulation, but they're not into closing things down. You know, these things, what we put on, are great for tourism as well. Uh, You know, brings people to the state. So, you know, you just need to dot your I's and cross your T's several times over.
0: Okay. And so from that first crossing, when you first went across to your buddies, how long was it before the first race happened, like the first official race that you did nine years ago? Sure. So I did that first test crossing in March, and then we got the event up in early December. Wow. So sort of six months, really yeah from inception to well from first test to actually getting it off the ground that's right that's pretty impressive and how helpful was it having um you mentioned Ross on board did that sort of open quite a few doors that hey we've got a big sponsor and they're kind of looking to push things was that a a kind of a big kick I guess in getting it moving absolutely yeah I mean Red
1: Bull you know clearly the the preeminent adventure sport brand in the world um so to have them on board I don't think it necessarily helped with the authorities but certainly with the the collateral and oh it's a Red Bull event, so it's it's gonna be good. Yeah. Um that really helped. Uh it was able to facilitate getting Alex Gazagay, one of my mates who I met in Namibia at yeah. the French rider, isn't he? That's right, the speed challenge that I was competing in probably six months before the test event that I or the test crossing, let's say. So, you know, Alex, clearly world speed champion, so this race, uh it's really like a cannonball run, you know, there's no tacking, no driving, he or she with the Fastest speed wins. So we brought Alex out from France. So he was a real headline act. So he won. The, and that was the, in the first race, the first one you did. Yeah, that's okay. Right. So he did that in
0: twenty-three minutes and thirty-four seconds. Wow! First crossing. First crossing. So was how many people were in that first race? Was it was yeah. it one hundred and thirty-five? Like you have now? Or is it a bit smaller? What sort of scale were we talking? Sure. No, it was sixty-five. So okay, it was it was half. And I think that first year
1: we even had probably two hundred people. We generally have about two hundred people apply. So. You know, it's clear, okay, there's going to be 140 disappointed people. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, every year we've sort of ratcheted up for probably the first six years, we got it up to about that 135, 140. Um, it's just the right number. Um, the reason being is the beaches you would have seen in the, the last few years. It's tight, uh, but not too tight. Obviously, being kiter myself and event director, et cetera, et cetera, you know, I know what everyone's trying to achieve and it, it just feels the right number. to to get that that. number of people across safely and we like to have this one uniform start where twin tips surfboards foils everyone's in together yeah it gets a little bit crowded a little bit hectic but that's that's kind of the fun of the experience and certainly certainly when you're looking from the the start boat or a couple hundred meters off the start line you can see you know 135 kites in the sky you don't often see that and it's, yeah. it's spectacular you know rotness love that as a visual it it sells the island to the world
0: yeah and so the first race you got 65 people going across alex um from france has come over he's won it were there any problems or any sort of mistakes that you made that first time round or did it run as smoothly as clockwork like it did yesterday to be honest it was pretty
1: smooth though i mean it was, it was
0: 9 years ago um yeah nothing
1: nothing bad happened uh, which was which was good always a uh, positive yeah i mean in the I mean, you've you've sort of been through some of the the highs and lows in the last nine years, but certainly the first one was really good. Uh, Second, we had to go back a week. Um, So the second one I learnt, we actually only had approvals for the first weekend. So we then hurriedly in that week had to convert an approval for the first weekend to the second weekend. Oh, because the wind forecast wasn't in for the first weekend. That's right. So now when we go to the authorities, I apply for a given Saturday with an option for the Sunday, and also with an option for the following Saturday and Sunday. So the authorities have basically approve possibly four dates. Yeah, that you um, can run it on. Yeah. Which interestingly, when I first ran it, you you kind of weren't thinking like that. Yeah. Because the wind 10 years ago, even you know, go back 20 years, was a lot more consistent. We're starting to see more and more sketchy, fletchy, difficult conditions as we've seen. Not this year, but the two years prior to that um, were touch and go they were just a little bit too light but you know they're above the regulatory 15 knots at Leighton beach at the finish which is the the rules of the race so yeah we've we've always run it within the the rules but certainly it's it's just clear
0: that 15 knots is just a little bit too light yeah and um so it's been running for nine years now so is there an event for you that you think was your favorite one and the one that you most enjoyed Sure, well, probably the first one, because I did it, and the euphoria of actually getting this thing off,
1: uh, and then... And so on, you were racing in the first one as well, yeah? I yeah. did the first three, so finished the first one, scratched on the second one, like a few people, had a few challenges at the start, again, kite dropped out of the sky, because it can be a little bit onshore there, so it can just be sketchy, uh, and end up on like what they call natural jetty, so that was a bit sad, watching the fleet
0: disappear, <laughs> <It disappeared. laughs>
1: off. and then obviously the third year, it's like, well, I've got to make good off the back of that one, which I did, and... I've still got some really cool pictures of a couple of my good kite mates at the finish, so that was really great. I think probably, let's say the first, and then the year Nico Palier won, I think that changed the paradigm of the race because he was just so incredibly fast. He was going yeah. like 70 knots, similar to like what Guy was doing yesterday. So to go and see what Guy achieved yesterday was, again, spectacular. You yeah. just can't believe the speed that people are doing on foils and the fact that I'm sitting on a, a Niagara, which is like a 24 foot power boat with a 350 or 400 horsepower engine. And effectively, we, we can't keep up. Yeah. So, so they're going faster yeah. than some of the boats. Yeah. I, I'm still surprised that the Eco Express, which is the lead boat, I think they've got like three, 300 horsepower yeah. engines on. So they can keep up. Um, but
0: it's still a pretty bumpy.
1: Bumpy riders you would have
0: known for yeah, being on the lead boat. I was on the boat yesterday and it's an experience being sat in the back of that. It was very wet and very bumpy. And it was, yeah, it was impressive. I mean, watching Guy streaks ahead of everyone else and you know just going so fast on that foil i think the skipper of the boat said we were doing 37 knots most of the time yeah, well, so huge. you know and he was going really fast so favorite events for you were the ones early ones that you kind of competed in i mean it must have been an amazing feeling to that first event to get that off the ground and then to actually race it as well where did you end up in the first race what was your place in
1: sure i think i was 19th so it was hmm. that was all right for a bit of an hour pretty hammer, good going
0: yeah. And Not, then it's just, you know, grown and grown since then. So, again, that's why I haven't done it in, in recent years. I'd still like to. but yours, That was going to be my next question was, you know, do you miss it, like competing in it? And do you think you ever will compete in it again? Ten years coming up next year. Maybe that's time for a celebration. Maybe it's
1: time for the, the reintroduction. I think I'd like to. Um, but at the end of the day, somebody's got to be the responsible person to make the decisions. Yeah. And, you know, having built up that body of knowledge over nine heading into the 10th year, um, that's not to say nobody could not, you're not Nobody's irreplaceable in this game, but yeah, he just takes the sort of skill set to make the right decisions at the right times. People look to you as a leader to say, okay, well, what are we doing? Yeah. Um, so maybe, maybe year ten. Um, there's, you know, there's a couple of people around who have been on the race since inception. So like Rob Bentley, who's the head referee. So I've always had Rob involved as the impartial judge. So if anyone's had to be disqualified or uh talking to in a bad way because you know basically they need to be disqualified. I've moved that out of my mantle as the event director. So that's Rob's role. So I'm always happy to make hard decisions and do that, you know, many times during the working week and the year. But Rob being the judge or the chief chief judge, it's just a nice separation
0: between the organiser and the judge yep so So it gives um, you that opportunity to not be the the bad guy going you've been disqualified that's exactly right and so in recent years I mean the race has certainly changed I remember last year the amount of international um, competitors was huge and this year there were still quite a few international competitors but the high level top racers um, there weren't so many of them what was the reason behind that what's been going on
1: Oh uh, what's the reason? I think probably there have been a lot of competitions globally yeah um it still continues to be a fairly expensive place to come and visit. you know it's a couple of thousand dollars from Europe uh, in the past, we've had falling championships that might have been on in Melbourne, uh the four cup, the gold cup, et cetera. that was on in Townsville uh, maybe a month or so ago, quite often there've been races in China, yep. so it's been a lot easier for people to to come down to the southern
0: hemisphere because they're over this side of the planet for
1: race series yeah and our race you know it's it's only not quirky but it's unique and it's quite short so it's a little bit of a lottery as well so you've kind of got to be a a really passionate interested racer to come down so if you if you're in the area the area being you know asia pacific it's a natural one to to just sort of pop on from somewhere out of hong kong or bangkok or china or and come down so i think that's probably the the main part of sort of a, a smaller number uh of international people this year but you know there's still 215 people who wanted to race this year we got spots for 135 so yeah the the quantum of people racing was no less but just the the top 10 in the world yeah. we you know probably had two three of those rather than you know 10 in the past where you've had you know the likes of ricardo lecesi and oh you sort of name the top, you know, um, top half a dozen. they've yeah. done it
0: at some point, haven't they?
1: Yeah, oh, absolutely. That's what's been really heartening just to see the quality of international talent that's come over and won the race.
0: And you still, you know, even with the international talent, there's an award um, in the Mark Sprod Trophy, which is for the fastest Western Australian. And I think that's quite a nice feature that you know it's a Western Australian event. There's a big kite community here, and you still recognise that by having that award. How did that come about? What was the thinking behind that? Because I know Mark sadly passed away. Did you have a trophy for the fastest Western Australian before that? Or was this something that, you know, was part of the race from the beginning?
1: Yeah, no, totally. It was introduced after the passing of Mark Sproud, who died in a kiting incident, coincidentally, where I kited at Dutch Inn. Um, When I heard about that, I sort of wanted to recognise his life and his sort of commitment to kiting and his passion. So around that time, it was also becoming clear that it was getting nigh on impossible for a West Australian to win. (laughs) Because all the
0: internationals are coming and taking the prize money. Yeah, pretty much.
1: (coughs) I mean, there have been years where I think the fastest West Australian was probably ninth or 10th or even just Australian. So that shows you how good quality the talent was. So it kind of made sense to actually recognise, well, who's the fastest local? Uh, And to qualify as a local, you basically need to... My rules are you generally
0: reside in Western Australia or a member of Kiteboarding Western Australia. Okay, and so so then you can race for that trophy. And talking of trophies, I mean, they're probably some of the most impressive trophies that I've ever seen. And I know speaking to Steph Bridge, who's won her fair share of trophies, they're pretty amazing. What was the thinking behind these, you know, extremely lavish um, mantelpiece things that you can give away to people because it is quite something what you put together.
1: Sure, Um, I think... Being in sales and marketing in my sort of daytime working life, um, I like to do things a little bit differently, Uh, get it a little bit special. And, you know, to be honest, there's some really nasty nasty trophies out there (laughs) that you can go and buy a little cup and stick a label on it. That's just never been my approach. It's never been Red Bull's approach. Um, I've always prided myself on how good the trophies can look. They've always been uniquely different every year, which, again, I I really like. Uh, We followed the theme this year with the sort of glass and the acrylic with sort of like laser cut timber yep. uh, featuring heavily Rottnest right Island because again they've been fantastic over the years and, and continue to throw a little bit of money at it but more importantly throw the support behind using the island so kind of without the island well we'd be, I don't know where we'd be kiting from to be honest.
0: <laughs> <if>. <laughs> well the race probably wouldn't exist I guess. Probably wouldn't exist. Um, do you have quite a lot of, you know, what's the sort of time frame That you have to put into it because you work a full time day job as well. So this isn't your, your job, so to speak. This is just something you do from pure passion. How much, um, you know, time are you having to invest to get this thing off the ground each year?
1: Sure. It doesn't take too much time for probably six to eight months of the year. And then come probably June, July, you're doing little bits and pieces on it. Not every night, but you know, a couple of nights a week for a couple of hours here and there. Uh, and then probably. October, November, it starts to sort of crank up. It kind of goes in real peaks. So yep. getting the website, okay, we've got to get, well, more to the point, we've got to get all the approvals in. So get the approvals in, okay, well, that's good. Uh, and then get the website up and running. So generally it's a recut of the year before because it works. It doesn't need to be changed, so it's really updating. So get that up and running, then it goes quiet again. In the past, we've had a bit of a ballot for many years. This year, just for a variety of reasons, we dispensed with the ballot and pretty much 90-odd percent of the foilers and surfboards got in yeah. uh, because we didn't have as many apply there. And then we probably had about 100 twin tippers apply. So we were going on, you needed to put a bit of information in around how good you were, why you wanted to do the race. And I was going to sort of rank it on who had the best story that you yeah. wanted to race. But what happened there was that everyone had a good story. And <laughs> it was too hard to go, well, Rue's got a great story there. Bob's not so good story. So I basically had to go, well, look, I've got to create my own ballot. One, three, five. So if you were an odd number this year, you got in. Okay. Because that's,
0: that's that's another big story about the event. You've got, you know, over 200 people entering, only 135 places. And one of the sort of common themes when I speak to people on the beach and at Rottnest and when we're on the ferry, like they're so... Pleased that they got a place, and you don't always get a place. Um, so, how hard is it to make those decisions, or do you just, like you said, go with the numbers and that's it? And you don't worry about it. Do you get anyone phoning you up and giving you a sob story and saying, "Please let me in"?
1: Oh, every year. <laughs> as soon as as soon as the notifications gone out, I would have uh, ten emails, <laughs> like people saying, "Please, please, please, can you put me on the reserve list?" So it kind of works because you know, whilst we allocate all the spots out. Um, you know, there's normally ten, fifteen percent stuff's happening. They can't get their act together, or they've gone away for work. So, if you really, really want to do it, you'll, you know, nine times out of ten, we'll find a spot. Yeah, so, doesn't mean a blanket roll, Everyone email me next
0: <laughs> October. <laughs> yeah, just open up you your inbox to some mega abuse there, Tim, with that everyone uh, getting involved and wanting to have a chat about it. Um, and what do you think? You know, I I know in my mind what I think makes the event so successful, and I'll come on to that in a minute, but what do you think makes the event so successful?
1: I think it's probably like a little winning formula. I think that we can choose a date and a time, and, you know, every year we've managed to do it, so that works. It's not always been on the first diet, but we've never not run the race in nine years. So the fact that we can choose a date and a time and we can make it happen, um, we're very, very lucky living in Western Australia for a variety of reasons, but we get typically great wind. So it's a cool place to kite. Um, Great trophies, great vibe. Everyone's really, really friendly. Um, You know, keeping 135 people happy at the best of times, plus 60 volunteers. You know, I didn't hear one complaint yesterday. Um, So, yeah, it's kind of like a little winning formula. It's like baking a cake, to use an analogy. You put everything in and it worked. So, like yesterday, I was was pretty sort of cruisy all the day just because you could see... The wind was going to work, you know, everything was lined up, rescue boats all good, the support we get from Fremantle, Tim and Rob and the start crews, that's working, volunteers, the Waxer or KWA, people are on the beach, you know, there wasn't too much, relatively speaking, that could go wrong that you could control, there's obviously, excuse me, once once the race starts, that's beyond my control, so, you know, if people, a couple of people got tangled, but that's got nothing to do with me, that's, yeah. that's their challenge and that's fine, and it just works. So it's kind of like a winning formula. that yeah. Just everyone has a such a cracking good day, you know, from the volunteers to the people competing. So it's just being part of something. So, you know, we often just had a good fortune to talk to Bill Tai, who yeah. I know you've done a podcast with. And, you know, he's a, you know, multi-gazillionaire VC guy, but part of that as an aside he's very much into building communities and we were talking about that at the the tech fest at Rotnest earlier this week so what we've got here is a really strong community and i think people like being part of that they like being involved and you know it's no fun just doing stuff on your own yeah so that's that's why it's that's why it's so good i think it's it's a community race uh and everyone can be involved and everyone gets the time so you can go oh, i was only five minutes behind guy yeah but Sadly, five minutes behind guy is like five kilometres. Yeah, which you know, five minutes is not far. So it's, that's kind of I think what excites people. It's like how much faster can I go? You know, it's like anyone who's on Strava, I know you are. Yeah. Um, how far?
0: How much faster can I go this year or this week? Yeah. So you can sort of gauge it. I mean, I think one of the things I I take away from the event every year is just how happy everyone is. Yeah. You know, it's just like you're on the beach and there's 135 super stoke kiter's. All the volunteers are smiling and, you know, can't do enough to help you and you've got some amazing people around the event. Um, And then you add into that the incredible weather. You know, there's kite crossing style events around the world, but I don't think any of them, you stand on the beach in Rottnest and it's, you know, tropical paradise without a cloud in the sky and a warm wind blowing across the ocean. And then you get to Leighton Beach and it's a tropical paradise all over again. You know, it's just, um, it's fantastic. And that's one of the things... One of the reasons I think it's so successful, and why I think if you're a kiteboarder, then you know this needs to be on your to-do list before you die, because if you haven't done the Red Bull Lighthouse to Leighton race, um, you're really missing out on an experience. I think that you know people should people should get involved with and 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 be part of because it is you know simply fantastic. Really, have you ever had any you know major mishaps over the years, or has there ever been? You know, a nightmare scenario I mean, I know last year we were doing the briefing, and the flags weren't even moving, so there must be some experiences along the way that have pushed your patience, i guess or pushed your uh decision making yeah probably, i was, I' was probably won the things out as more
1: anecdotal um and then the the two that have sort of pushed my patience so certainly there's a lovely gentleman in Perth called Dale Stanton, and Dale's actually won the event and continues to feature really well. But there was a particular year, maybe year three or four, where I think he was trying to outrun a dive boat, which was coming back. So it's sort of like the old proverb about does a does a bear poo in the woods? Well, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. But this particular incident actually got caught on helicopter footage. So when, you, when we've seen it in the past, we going, geez, that was close, like astonishingly close. So that's more sort of folklore, if you like, how close that was. Yeah. Uh, but no, so no big ships. But yeah, the two years that have probably been the most challenging uh in in recent times so last year was particularly difficult because we had to delay the start for an hour just because like you were saying it was so hot and it was almost i won't say a mill pond but it was very light breeze uh but the forecast had validated getting one over to the island so again that's that's part of the challenge as well we're getting 135 people to an island so you can kite back um so last year was tricky and then as you i think you're on the I think I've done it two tricky boat.
0: years. Yeah. <laughs> maybe. I don't know if the second one's the one I'm thinking of. But...
1: but then a few years ago, it was the wettest, coldest December day ever on record yeah. in Western Australia. That was the day I raced, yeah. <laughs> so everything had been cancelled in Perth. We have this sort of pageant where like, you know, 50,000 kids go down to St. George's Terrace and watch sort of Pixies and Santa and Father Christmas and everything lob along the terrace. So they cancelled that this year because the weather forecast was so bad and yet we were. Crazy enough to think we could run the kite race that afternoon. <laughs> anyway, were, and we were standing in the shed, the jetty, uh, and it was hailing. I remember it was cold, thinking, hope this weather forecast changes in the next six hours. And to our credit, it did. And the breeze came in. It was solid 18, 19 knots. It was beautiful. But I think that was Guy Bridge. It was actually. <coughs> Sorry, Ollie Bridge. Um, he got to within maybe a mile of the shore. And this chunk of cloud basically moved across the the finish line and all the breeze dropped out. It was just unheard of. Like When the wind's in here in Perth, it stays in till it stops at night and then get this whole weather pattern thing. So it was just unheard of. So I wasn't too worried, relatively speaking, about Ollie because I was there in a boat. What I was worried about was the 100 people following in behind thinking, what are we going to do with 100 people stuck in the ocean? You know, yeah, we've got the safety boats to get them out, but it's always going to be a stretch. So anyway, the cloud moved on, the wind continued to fill in from behind, and because the the bridge family is so fast, everyone else was like 10 minutes behind this wind hole. So by the time they'd sort of moved into that area, the wind had picked up. But there's there's still a little picture of a dozen kites, maybe even a couple more, just sort of floating around the finish line. I was in that Uh, group, yeah, yeah. I remember it well. And then the wind picked up, and you know even even that day when not that people would have flamed me but when people could have been oh that was horrible that was terrible you know <laughs> there was genuinely no negative feedback because it had been such a good crossing for the vast majority of people and yep. then when the wind did pick up and most people were able to sort of kite to safety and get across so you know when it's a even in the what I say out of adversity comes opportunity Yeah. Um, so that was the Peter McEwen one so it was great to have a a West Australian win again, uh, amongst a pretty hot shot international field. So they they're probably the, the two toughest years
0: Oh, that makes me feel a bit better. Then yeah. I raced in the two toughest years. That's right. I'll come back next year. Maybe we'll get some good wind, or maybe I'm the jinx. Maybe every year I race, it's not that good. So maybe that, maybe I shouldn't be racing. But I do remember that year. It was, it was literally, you know, raining and hailing, like you say in Perth, and we we're all stood under the uh, the ferry terminal roof, just thinking, what on earth is going on? Like, how is this going to happen? And you know, to your credit, when we got over to Rottnest, the weather was. Lovely and it started warming up and the wind filled in and you know, most people made it across and had a great day. And I think, like you said, you know, people really enjoyed it. Um, We've mentioned the bridges a couple of times. They've had a long association with this race. How did that relationship start and how did you get them involved?
1: Sure. So their relationship with the race actually started around. Uh, probably edition three, maybe four, when we partnered with the uh, Kite Racing Oceanics. Okay. So the state government supported a, a big kite racing festival called Kite Racing Kite Racing Oceanics, which is basically course racing out on Leighton. Okay. And Red Bull Lighthouse Leighton was on at that time, and Kite Racing, kite racing Oceanics, it just made perfect sense to, to partner with them. So they were able to bring the bridges out, and from then... Actually, I think they were camping. It was a family holiday. So somehow I ended up looking after all their (laughs) tents and (laughs) sleeping bags for probably three years. Stuck in in the garage? I was in my cellar, uh, (laughs) that underground cellar. So we stored that. And yeah, we've just sort of built our friendship significantly over the last probably seven years. You know, watch, I feel like an old man now, but sort of watch (laughs) the kids grow up, you know, from being sort of probably 15. Yeah, it wouldn't be far off that. Uh, and then, you know, they've gone from being amazingly good as super youngsters to being, you know, pretty good as, as teens. Um, the fact that I think Ollie's won it twice, Guy's won it once now. Obviously, Steph's won it countless times, probably five times, I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's been a nice, nice relationship. I'm going to uh, knock on their doors in, I think, June or July next year, and uh, I'm going to. Not expect obviously, but I'll. I'm <laughs> sure the favour will be returned. So you're being on, you're on notice now, Steph. We're going to come and visit yeah. for a couple of days.
0: I know Steph listens to these, so yeah. hey, Steph. Tim's going to be coming for you.
1: So you've got a nice swimming pool down there in uh, in the southwest. So. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah, because you're coming over to the Europe for a bit, aren't you? So you can get yeah. some return favors from people that you've helped out over the years. You're probably free accommodation all the way around. Um, and it's the 10th anniversary year next year. That's right. Um, which is obviously going to be quite a big thing. Have you got any plans in place? Or have you maybe, you know, you just finished the ninth one, but have you got any ideas that you're going to do to make it a little bit different? Or are you just going to run with the same format, but on a grander scale? Or is it just going to be Tim gets to race this year and that's the difference.
1: Yeah, well, Tim gets to race this year is probably the least likely, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. But uh, Red Bull certainly are committed and 100% behind making it happen from something the discussion we've had in the build-up to this year. So that's really exciting. Um, it's kind of what can we do differently? Um, so we could potentially get more people in. That's a potential. Don't hold it to me, everyone. Um, so the potential to run maybe two starts, maybe run like a foil surfboard start, and then maybe five minutes later, have a twin tip start. That would be probably the easiest way to get the field at, you know, whether we'd want to go to 200, it just seems a little too many, but certainly I think we could definitely get it to 150 as a sort of one-off addition. And it would be a one-off addition because really you'd probably need to get another five rescue boats. Involved just to sort of meet the the safety ratios. Yeah. So you can kind of call those favors every once in a while, but and, not every year. But yeah. not every year. And I think having that scarcity as well. Um, you know, you look at economics, demand and supply. If suddenly we opened it up to three hundred people, well, you'd probably fill it. There'd be three hundred people, but then it'd be like, oh, you did three hundred people in addition ten and back. Now it's back to one hundred and thirty-five. Oh, why was that? Yeah. So scarcity is a wonderful thing. You know, if you, it's a money can't buy experience. So Keeping it unique. I'll certainly be talking to my friends at Red Bull there they've got a few bits and pieces that they're they're working on. I'd still like to see a bit of a little mini movie. I love I like the idea of um, ideally flying business class, but that happens very probably about <laughs> once every ten years. But at least sitting on an Emirates flight or a Qantas flight, sitting down watching, you know, Red Bull Lighthouse Solaton, thirty minute T V program for me, that would be super, super exciting. Um, not that I want to see myself on television, but <laughs> I'd love to see the event. You know, you're on an airplane. I think that would be, for me, a little sort of icing on the cap to have a little TV program made. So if if that
0: could happen. Um, Anyone yeah. listening with the TV production company? That's yeah. Uh, well, there's a story right there for you, isn't Absolutely. It? Um, and, you know, we've mentioned the sort of scarcity of it and the lottery of getting in and everything like that and just in that last sentence you said it's like a, a money can't buy experience you know it's not just the race is it it's a whole day out that people are experiencing so what you know what what does it what does it give people i guess sure
1: i mean it's it's probably even more than that it's probably a a focus for many people certainly the people who are serious about it or even the people are 50% of the field who are serious about trying to do as well as possible it's it's a focus for the first part of summer for many many people so lots of people so like dale stanton who i was talking about yep. you know he showed me his new board um that he'd only finished 24 hours before the race with his sort of vector sweatback fins uh you know people like the bishops who make custom boards to try and go really, really fast john o'keys a notable winner from a few years ago he would shape or have a mate shape board so people it's a it's an experience, but in terms of what you get for your bang for your buck, um, everyone gets a, an amazingly designed custom lycra. In the past, we had those made in France, but then they were fantastic. But we then found a local supplier who custom design and manufacture those here in Western Australia. So again, the quality of the lycras. So we we, we run a, a high-quality event, uh, which we're able to do because we've got high-quality sponsors. So you get an amazing lycra that I'm still using, well, probably not ones from the first edition because those were cheaper quality Lycras, (laughs) but certainly since we've been using the French team out of uh, South of France, and now obviously dynamic sublimation in Welshpool, the Lycras are awesome. They're like commercial grade quality. So you can continue to use that Lycra for many years. Uh, We think about what we do. So you have to have a couple of flares. So the Lycras have got their custom design. They have a hole for your harness, and then they have a special custom sleeve to pop pop um, a couple of flares in your back pocket so you don't have to take them on or anything like that you get an amazingly good custom t-shirt we supply the flares because i guarantee that if every competitor had to go and find flares it would be a pain in the butt yeah uh, and 50 percent of my lovely kiting buddies would not worry about it so <laughs> then you know what do you do when you need a flare and you couldn't be asked to go to the shop and get your flares. So anyway, so we, we make it really easy for people to race as well. So we get them over there, we get a free ferry, we with the ferry company. Um, in the past, we've had genuinely fantastic support from the state government. Um, they weren't on board this year. We were, the reason a few people have said, well, what happened to tourism? So we used to be their smallest big event. Um, yes, we have had a change in government, but they've had a real focus on filling stadiums and things like that. So we just didn't meet the economic, matrix that they wanted from a financial sponsorship so you know i understand that but credit to red Bull, and you know we put the entry fee up 30 bucks this year so not a huge amount we've always tried to keep the entry fee right down so pretty much you get awesome i believe bang for your buck and i think you know everyone would attest to that as well you know that's why you've got 215 people applying for 135 spots yeah so yeah it's kind of like a whole you know experience of two three months and yeah good after party with the awesome people from Fremantle sailing club afterwards so we're there till about 10 30
0: 11 o'clock at night and maybe that's why i'm a bit croaky today that's <laughs> all right i spent most of the day being horizontal <laughs> but that's because of my bad ankle and i've been resting it that's what i'm claiming um and you've mentioned um tourism western australia there i know um they've you know supported the event in the past are you hoping to try and renew that relationship moving forwards do you think they might change their attitude to the smallest big event um or are they kind of set in their mindset at the moment yeah i think so i think once they see a lot of the photography and the images um and
1: again just a bit more flexibility i think they'll probably have a, a reassessment or i hope they will um they've been a wonderful supporter and you know we continue to get on as a event company if you like on me as an individual you know in fact they introduced me more so to um, the team at Rottnest Island, so it's it's the same part of government, if you like, just a sort of different strategic slant. So yeah, it's not that they're not on board, but it's just that they weren't able to financially contribute to the running of the event this year. But you know, to
0: our credit, we we ran it very very similar to to how we did in prior years. Yeah, so you still managed to get it off the ground. Yeah. And sponsorships, obviously a big part of the event and that must be a big chunk of the time that you spend. Do you go and actively pursue all those sponsorships or do you have someone that works for you that helps out with that? No, I pretty much sort of go
1: shaking the can uh, <laughs> and having having conversations with people. So probably the one opportunity is for Kite brand to come back on board. So we were very lucky to have Cabrina for probably six years uh, and then it sort of drifted again through, not through any dissatisfaction it's just you know companies have budgets and yeah. you know make decisions do we want to continue to sponsor this look we've had six good years so there's an opportunity for a refresh of a of a kite brand so if there's any wealthy kite manufacturers out there that would love to be involved next year is probably going to be the the biggest and best so yeah a good time, good, time, to, good get time to get on the get on the bandwagon um but yeah we're as i say, we're fortunate to get great sponsorship from red bull uh a little bit of support financially but in the big picture a huge amount of support from Rottnest Island themselves and then you know competitors as well paying what's it, $195 including GST so that's you know $170 from them to actually contribute to the running of the event so you know the Lycras are 55 $60, bucks, t shirts 30 35 bucks. now paying the ferry fees over or a fair chunk of them that's $30 so it all adds up at every yeah. little component part. You know, flares are $15 each. But yes, you get, you know, two, three years' life out of them. So this year was actually the first year I didn't have to buy any flares, which
0: was <laughs> which <is> great. <laughs> have you ever had anyone set off a flare? Uh, probably twice. Oh, really? So that's pretty good in... That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I'm surprised that anyone would. I mean, I, I, I guess... You know, I remember when my dad learned to windsurf and he had a pack of flares with him because it was way back in the 80s. Um, and, you know, the life-saving sort of situations weren't around in the winter in those times. So, you know, I can't imagine a situation where I'd ever end up letting off a flare because there's so many boats around and there's so many kites around. It's kind of hard to be seen. But a couple of people actually did. That's quite impressive. Who was it? Or, you know, what was the situation? I guess they were just...
1: Oh, I just think they needed a rescue and they felt they hadn't been seen. Yeah. But when you kind of do the do the maths, you know, let's say nine years, uh, let's say hundred people, you know, so we've had roughly let's even if you said eight hundred people kite across. Two it's flares. Like, two is, flares. It's pretty good. It's pretty great, to be honest. It's testament to the quality of the rescue guys that they've found people.
0: Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the other thing I was gonna ask about is the safety aspect of it, because it's um I remember the first year I came over, the funniest not funniest, I guess, but yeah, possibly the most comical aspect for me was I'd never been to a race briefing where sharks were talked about and there was a whole process of what would happen if sharks were spotted. And, you know, if you were halfway across, then whether you went back to Rottnest or you carried on and how people got out the water. But there's a huge safety aspect to this because obviously, you know, you're not just letting loose 135 people. How do you go about, you know, dealing with that and working with those people and putting those procedures in place so that you know you've got a safe race? Yep.
1: Yeah, so we basically have a risk assessment. So we create a risk management plan, which looks at all what can possibly go wrong. So ships, sharks, hypothermia, injuries, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So that's the sort of the context for what can possibly go wrong. And then you assess that on low, medium, high. Um, and what you can control and what you can't control. So that, that gives you the, the matrix or the template. And then off the back of that, we write a, a rescue management plan, which is basically instructions for the eight rescue craft that are involved with the race. So yep. six typically are third income rescue boats. And then things like the Eco Express, that's more like a, whilst a very fast rescue craft, it's basically like a barge. So if there's a catastrophic event, you know we can get 45 people on that boat if we yep. need to. So there's you know, two-thirds of the fleet, you know, Grand Crew, which is the start, sorry, the finished boat. If need be, you could probably get 20 people on there. So that's suddenly 60, 65. The finishing boat is a converted cray fishing boat, so you can get you know 30, 30 odd people on there. So pretty much within about 10%, we've got we can get every person on a boat somehow. As well, then you know you've got boats in the vicinity, so we can we can get ninety percent of the people on all our boats if we really really had to. But the likelihood of I can't imagine some catastrophic event because remember the whole fleet's probably spread over ten kilometres at any given time. Yeah, you know, bad shit's not going to happen to one hundred and thirty-five people at the same at time. any one time. Touch wood, never say never. <laughs> so then yeah sort of following that through we're very fortunate to be partnering with from sailing club you know they bring awesome people awesome boats um, we kind of not exactly give them the context but we help it help them to make it easy for them and for a great day for the volunteers so yep. yeah so it sort of starts risk management plan context and rescue plan and then operationally doing it just yep. going around okay you're in a safety boat <clears throat> okay well that kite's been in the water five minutes we better mosey over and have a conversation with them. You know, yeah. Are they resting? Are they trying to get the kite up? Are they injured? So, you know, if they're injured or they need to retrieve the kite, well, that's what we do. Swing into action, get that kite, collapse, get it on the boat, and then either get it back to Head or back to Rotnest if they're within, you know, maybe a mile of, of the start.
0: And this year you had the rescue instructions printed on the Lycra as the new, which is quite yes. that's a new addition.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that was really cool. I uh, just put the context there on your arms so we had the lycos. so on the right we had safety messages like six safety messages and then on the left it had six rescue messages so if you needed to be rescued you kind of could actually remind yourself what you needed to do you know people in emergency situations can panic so if anyone did which thankfully nobody did but it was there to go okay well don't panic collapse my lines wind them up stay in the the flotation of the of the kite, don't collapse your kite because it's a lot easier to see a 10, 15 metre kite than it is just to see a, a floating
0: person in the in the water. And I know you have, um, you know, the, when, you, when you start the race, you do your race briefing and then everyone collects their two flares and that's kind of you're in the race then. Correct. And every year it seems that somebody <laughs> forgets to sign out of the race, you know, because obviously you need to make sure everyone's off the water. Is that perhaps the most challenging part of the event that you know people aren't listening to the instructions that you're giving them and aren't following them or are there other aspects of the event that make it hard, do you think?
1: Uh, kind of like a million dollar question. Um, yeah, it's perplexing at the end where people are not coming in to, to sign in. It's, it's just probably a bit of a latency on people's part and also not sort of recognising a whole heap of other stuff that's going on. You know, We're obviously keen to get everyone safe so once, once people are safe, either on the boat, I having been rescued or they're on the beach, they're, they're off the hook, if you like, from my perspective. So the sooner that happens, the sooner we can do presentations and, you know, everyone can have a great afternoon. Like yesterday, we started half an hour earlier and, you know, I think we were heading back home at sort of 4.30, which was awesome, which was a real contrast to the prior year where we started an hour late and it probably took Another 40 minutes to find a couple of people who'd gone sort of uh, a bit randomly walkabout who hadn't listened to the instructions. So, I mean, you're in the briefing yesterday, so you you heard how we were, we rammed home. We probably said less, but said more repeating of the real key points, which was a
0: bit, a bit different. And that's give your flares back and sign out. That's exactly right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not one, hard to do. The one thing that you need to do: give your flares back and yeah. sign out, and then you know it becomes easy. What's the most challenging aspect of being a race director and organising this whole event? Do you think most challenging? Organising the wind because that's a, <laughs> that a bit you can't control. So,
1: so I say that slightly tongue in cheek. So, if you can't control that, what can you control? So that can all be done. So having the foresight to actually have four four dates, so that's that's when it gets, if you like, not annoying, but you work on a date, so to have to put it back the following weekend, that creates all sorts of commotion and headaches because, you know, we get people flying in from, from Singapore, like tiles comes down, and different people do fly in from eastern states, from around the world. So part of our notice of race instructions is, look, if you're coming to race in the ideal world, plan to be here for the first weekend or the second weekend so that's again cuts out the, the stressful part so i try not to create or have too much stress in my life i don't think it's particularly healthy um so i do work hard to try and make sure that not too much can go wrong so yeah hopefully nothing's too too stressful it's i mean it's an exciting day you know i enjoy putting it on seeing so many happy people so i get a lot of satisfaction out of delivering what i believe the number one kiteboarding race in the southern hemisphere but you know i like to think in the world i know the defy kite's right up there as well so i figure if they're the best in the northern hemisphere we're in the best in the south we've got a nice little strategic sort of not partnership but there's a really good one out of france and our one down in western australia it's, it's cool so yeah just probably the most stressful part i think is getting people across it's not like you're going up and down a beach yeah so there's there's quite a lot of water yeah out there that's probably the biggest big picture challenge when you're just looking back from the little rescue boat that I'm sitting on. You know, there's, yeah, there's genuinely a lot of water. You've got, let's call it 20 Ks, probably got a hundred square kilometers of potential the where people can get lost. Yeah. So that's that's probably the the more I think about it. That's probably the most stressful part, making sure that
0: everyone is safely back on, on the shore. So once that's done, I'm pretty happy. So that comes back to what we said before, with the chaps not, or people not giving in their flares, that's the thing that makes it really difficult for you. So if you're doing this race and perhaps listen to this podcast because you think, "Ah, oh, see if I can find out some insights into it, then uh, make sure you listen to the instructions and give the flares back and sign off. And then Tim can relax for the afternoon <laughs> rather than being worried about you out there on the ocean. Um Another thing I wanted to ask you about, Tim, which is completely different, but it kind of relates a little bit, which is, we mentioned Alex Kaiser at the beginning, uh, the French rider who you met in Namibia, and for a while, are you still the the Australian speed record holder? Is that still in your hands, or, or did someone take it from you? No, there's a guy, Tim, out of South Australia, who went back to
1: Namibia the following year and sort of cracked my record, which was
0: 10 years ago, so... So, yeah, that's a bit a while ago. And what was your, you were obviously passionate about speed back then. So, you know, going to Namibia is a pretty full-on spot. How did that all come about and what was your thinking behind it?
1: Sure, I just resigned from my sort of employed job and was setting up my own consulting business in strategy, sales, and marketing. So I was turning 40, had sort of, if you like, not necessarily time and money, but I had time and a little bit of money or enough money to say, yeah, I want to go and do that. Um... I think I worked if I, I can't remember the exact speeds but I was doing some training at Woodman Point, which is more a freestyle spot. But yeah, it's fact that good it's, flat water. It's good flat water, so you can just zip along on a on a on a speed board. So I, I think if my yeah, I think if I'd got hit forty knots as a peak speed in there, I thought, yeah, that would be good enough to to go to Namibia. And so I think I got to thirty nine, so I thought, yeah, let's let's go and do this. So yeah, sort of ordered some custom boards from the cape doctor i think it was out of cape town uh and then yeah went and competed with the guys who were genuinely the best in the world i was sort of a bit of a screaming raging amateur but (laughs) hey they they welcomed me on on equal terms uh, and i had a good two weeks i mean most of the guys were there for a month and i mean what sebastian does out there in the desert is is pretty amazing and even just going to namibia as a country it was culturally just pretty random and pretty crazy um yeah i'd like to go back but it's kind of just getting to from my perspective turn 50 next year not exactly dangerous but you go yeah i'll, I'll stick with cycling and and kiting but i'm just, you know it's the i guess my message is um if you get an opportunity to do things uniquely different go and do them um you know not that it's important but i've got the certificate on the wall in the garage that that we did have the australian kite speed record so that's Something you'll take to the grave is kind of a, a cute little thing. So you know, it's like people winning lighthouse to late, and when you look at the the satisfaction and the the sheer delight on the winners' faces yesterday, particularly some of the girls who just cock a hoop for winning. Oh, that was classic, wasn't it? I mean, they
0: just couldn't believe it. Yeah, <laughs> that was really funny. Yeah. And yeah, I guess you know, like you said, you've got that certificate, so that's always going to stay with you that's right get the certificate get the t-shirt get the t-shirt when you're there keep my memories and um and keep hold of them tim that's been really insightful asking you a few questions about the race um you know if you're listening to this then enter it if you're listening to this and you you have entered or you've done it in the past then hopefully you'll find some of this stuff interesting and a bit of insight for you for um for next year's event and let's look forward to 10 years of the red bull lighthouse to Leyden and maybe another 10 Absolutely, Crikey will be old by then. <laughs> thanks for coming over. Cheers, Tim. Thank you All very best. much for that. You're welcome. Excellent. There we have it. Episode seventeen done and dusted. I really enjoyed listening back to that one. And thanks once again, Tim, for having me over to Australia and actually pushing me out of my comfort zone again this time because I had the broken ankle and didn't really want to travel. But it was Tim that persuaded me that I could use special assistance at the airport, and there was having a broken ankle was no excuse not to go to Australia and cover the race. Anyway, bit of housekeeping. Um, If you enjoyed that episode, then please give it a thumbs up. Give it a like and a share on social media. Tell your friends about it down the pub. If you're feeling fruity, then why not give it a five-star rating on the App Store? That's always hugely appreciated. Um, But just help me spread the word, because obviously I can get these podcasts out so far. But if you can get them a little bit further by telling people about them, then that's even better. So the next episode will be going out on Monday. That episode will be uploaded from South Africa, which is where I'm going to be based for a little while. Um, And I'm hoping to get some good content while I'm over there. Thanks very much for tuning in. You've been listening to Root Chater and the Intriguing Beings podcast. Have a fantastic week.